The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Here we are, very special No Excuses podcast. Before you even get into it, make sure you subscribe at Apple Podcasts, go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday morning. And you'll be glad you did, because this episode of No Excuses is my first ever live podcast from Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank with Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, my special guest, Phil Wills, from the Bar Rescue Operation Puerto Rico episode, and about 120 of some great fans. Here we go. Bar Rescue has been an incredible journey for me. It's now almost eight years that we're on TV, and the story is a great one. I remember when I first came up with the idea of Bar Rescue, I was giving a speech at a convention, and somebody says to me, you should be on TV. So I wrote up a piece of paper for a show that was sort of a cross between Kitchen Nightmares and Mission Impossible where I had a file with bartenders and experts in it, and I would pick different ones for each mission. And it was called On the Rocks. And I wrote it up, and I brought it to a friend of mine who was an executive at Paramount Television. And he looks at me, and he says to me, John, you will never be on television. (laughs) You're too old. You're not good-looking enough. Just forget about it. So I drove out of the Paramount gates, swearing that I'd be back one day. And I went and shot my own sizzle reel. About three minutes of Nicole and I in a bar in Hermosa Beach, pretty much screaming at people for about three minutes. And at the time, I didn't have a big crew, so we stuck a little camera between Nicole's boobs, and it was a booby camera. That was our sizzle reel, believe it or not. So we made the sizzle reel, and then we sent it to four production companies who I didn't know at all, just strangers, we sent it to them. Within like four days, we got four phone calls, literally four out of four. And the television convention, I don't even know what the hell the name of it is, in France was going on at the time. And I got calls from two companies who said, don't sign anything till we're back from France. So we didn't. So we met with the four companies. We negotiated deals. I didn't have a great lawyer like I have now, so I sort of screwed up the deal a little bit in the beginning. And less than a year later, Bar Rescue premiered. And I always remember calling that friend who said to me, you will never be on TV, and saying to him, guess what? I'm on TV. (laughs) And and that was the beginning of Bar Rescue. And and the first season was 10 episodes. The second season was 10 episodes. The third season was 40 episodes. And the fourth season was, I have some crew here, 52 episodes, something around those kind of lines. So now we've made 169 episodes And every one of them is emotional to some degree. Either you feel bad for the owner because they're just a jerk, or you feel bad for them because of their family, right, who's who's suffering the consequences of their actions, or you feel bad for the employees. There's always somebody that you have to attach to to fight for. The owner's a jerk. I can't fight for him. The employees are jerks. I can't fight for them. So who the hell do you fight for? 
sometimes it's hard, so I fight for the kid that they have that I haven't even met. But at least it's something I can fight for. Every bar rescue has a different kind of a fight. And sometimes you fight who they are. Sometimes you fight what they are. And it's a very powerful personal dynamic. And you see me scream and yell on bar rescue often. Let me tell you what's going through my head. First of all, I have no time, so there's a clock ticking, so I'm under a lot of pressure. I only have four days to do what would normally take two months. So I'm a raving maniac from the get-go. I don't have time for you to get on board. I'm making you get on board now. That's one. The other issue about the pressure of it is what you don't know about Bar Rescue is that when, we, when I arrive on set, I've never been there before, I've never met these people, I sit down in my makeup chair, they make me look better than this, I sit on my makeup chair <laughs> and they do my hair and, and, and my producer, Bisha, are you here? Yep. Bisha, stand up, my executive producer, Bisha. <laughs> Who else is here for my crew? Jeff Sims is here, my sister, is that James back there? I can't see. Who else is here in the dark? Chaz, Chaz from Paramount Network, is the executive who manages the show, who gives me the freedom to do this. Thank you, Chaz. You're great, buddy. Good to see you. You feeling better? Good. So I sit down in my makeup chair, and I get about a one-minute briefing. And then I go in, and the rest of it is completely real. There's not one word scripted. So the owners really set the dynamic of the episode. If they're resisting, I'm going to be resisting. Right? If they're just stupid, then I'm going to be a teacher. So I assume the role that they make me assume. Here's what you don't know. is After the first night, after recon, we turn the cameras down, and it's probably my favorite part of the show, right, guys? We all go into the bar, and we design the bar that night, the same day as recon. And it typically takes us about 20 minutes. Where's Phil Wills? Phil, say hi to Phil Wills. Stand up, say hi to Phil. Phil, you and I have done how many episodes together? Oh, quite a bit, quite a bit. Over 15 or so? Yeah, I would say about that. So, so you've seen this, because I know in the early days you're a little surprised. You've seen the bars get designed that night. So I have about 20 minutes to design the bar. So I design it that night. The next morning, my art team's picking out bar stools, wallpapers, and they're trying to take my design and turn it into the design elements. The second day, we're shooting stress tests and training and meetings. What you don't see off camera is I'm signing off on bar stools, wallpapers, and my crew here knows it. I sign off on everything. Nothing really happens on a show my name's on it that I'm unaware of. At the end of the second day after stress tests, the logos have to be to the sign company or we're dead. The recipes all have to be done with Phil for the mixology team, the chef, or we're dead. The furniture has to be ordered or we're dead. And at the end of the second day after stress test, we then strip the bar down that night and we start remodeling. Day three on Bar Rescue, we train in another location. That's because we're remodeling the bar. Day four on Bar Rescue at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is about 36 hours. A white van pulls up in the parking lot with them blindfolded, and they see the bar. And we do it in four days. We do it on the fly every time, and I can only do it because I got the best crew in the world. And, and that's really how this happens, and they make me look great every day. And I have an amazing network. And what's remarkable to me about Bar Rescue is, you see, television and reality conflict with each other. And here's what reality stars won't tell you. The production company wants to know everything that's going to happen before it happens. That's how they protect their investment. John turns blue bar into pink bar. 
Now they know what they're getting. They know what they're spending their money on. But that's not reality because the result is predetermined. I don't do that. I walk in and build what I want to do. And the network has no idea what we're going to do until we get there. Right, Chaz? And that freedom, he's sweating bullets over there every week. That freedom that the network provides to me and the crew is what makes Bar Rescue great. They let us show up and follow the reality. They don't know what we're going to build till we build it. They don't know sometimes what it's going to cost. Where's James? What it's going to cost till the budgets come in. But the fact of the matter is it's real because the Paramount Network allows it to be real. And that's what makes the show special. And that freedom is what lets me be a good host. So, so you know, thanks to Paramount, and that's the inner workings of Bar Rescue, and that's what makes it so special. So we were going to do a hurricane episode down in Houston. And uh, by the time we got all of our efforts and coordination together, Houston had already gotten better. <laughs> Repairs had been made. The city wasn't in trouble anymore. So we couldn't go down to Houston and do a hurricane rescue that wasn't real. So we shut down production, I guess it was five or six weeks. Six weeks, we realigned everything, put all of our logistics towards Puerto Rico to try to really make a difference. We had advanced teams down there five, six weeks ahead of time. Chaz was, was a champion for making this happen through the network, pushing it through issue after issue after issue. Then suddenly Spirit stepped up, then Home Depot stepped up, the network stepped up, different people stepped up, and suddenly it happened. It was the most powerful two weeks I've ever had on Bar Rescue. Because in Bar Rescue, typically I can blame that owner for the situation they're in. You're failing because of you, buddy, right? You're the one who caused this. That was not the case with Janet and Victor. And when you see how good they were, and you saw it, and how much they don't deserve this pain, it's the ultimate lesson of how unfair life is. And only we can correct unfairness. That's up to us. Nature doesn't correct unfairness. Humans do. And this was an opportunity to try to change the unfairness that happened there. Here's what was really powerful to me, and I want to bring my friend Maria Menunos and Kevin Undergaro up in a minute. And, and, you know, Phil, come up here for a minute. Come on, buddy. He didn't know I was going to do this to him. I've been doing things to you for years that you haven't expected, so grab a seat, buddy. Talk to me for a moment about your very first bar rescue experience. <laughs> My very first bar rescue experience was, um, <clears throat> we're in Vegas. Yeah. yeah. Devin was there. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're in Vegas, and quite honestly, you know, I get, I get asked the same question all the time, is it real? And... I swear to God, the first time I was on the show, I went to the producers. I said, how do you want me to act? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, they're like, what do you mean? I said, how do you want me to act up here? Like, what do you want me to do? And they said, just go be you. Just do what you do. And I was like, okay. You know, and John embraced me. And he said, listen, I just want you to do what you normally do in real life. So that was my first episode ever, you know, and it was pretty intense. It was really intense. actually. Which one was it? That was the uh, bacon bar. The Bacon Bar episode. Yeah. That was a great episode. Yeah. We actually put out a very important statistic in that episode. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> the statistic came from Stanford University. And the interesting part of this statistic is it tells you, with of all the resources and money that our universities have, 
This was the piece of research they gave us. Fifty-four percent of men would rather have bacon than sex. That was the research that they gave us in that episode, right? Yeah. Now, I'd like to see one guy in this room who goes along with that statistic. Look around, there's not one hand up. So I question the whole research to begin with. But that was a bacon bar episode, and that was an interesting dynamic because we caught one of the sons stealing from the family. Yeah, there was all kinds of shady stuff going on. There was stuff in the tip jar and not putting money in the register, and the, the guy was about 80 years old, the grandfather, yeah. um, and he was putting all his money into it. It was just, it was a sad thing. So... I was already angry about that bartender. His name was Justin. So when we got into the stress test, I wasn't letting him, you know, get by with anything at that point. My favorite Phil Wills moment in any bar rescue was the moment Phil puked. <laughs> we were doing a rescue at a bar called Fairways. Why are we talking and, about it? And there was, there was some Guinness draft beer. I'm guessing that keg was probably as old as Phil was. But <laughs> yeah. tell them what happened. Tell them the story. You know, we went in there, and, and uh, I wanted to drink a dark beer, a stout, a Guinness. And she said, you know, there's not a lot left. And I said, well, just pour what you have. Because we were under the impression that their beers weren't pouring correctly. There was foam coming out, so I wanted to taste the temperature. <laughs> you don't taste the temperature on a Guinness beer that's been sitting there for about two years and hasn't been poured. So literally, it hit my lips, and it went down my throat. And I was sitting up at the bar, and we had ordered all this food. And I said, what am I going to do now? I need to puke. And, you know, I probably should have just puked all over the bar top. But It would have been great TV, <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. Uh, but I ran, and I just, I just lost my shit in the, in the, bath, in the bathroom. I Had Chaz been on set, you probably would have puked on the bar. Probably... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we call back that all the time. So, so, so uh, uh, that was one of my favorite Phil Wills moments. What you don't know about Phil <laughs> is we have a little MCR, Master Control Room, and we watch the video monitors. And I'll go in and I'll do the sit-downs and I'll talk to people and Phil will sit in the MCR. Big, tough Phil Wills cries like a baby when he's in that MCR. When when we get into these emotional moments and it's not only Phil, it's Vic Vegas. Big, tough Vic (laughs) Vegas. Cries like a freaking baby on set. Every minute that we're there, we all do. And that's why Bar Rescue works. Because we all are connected to these people. We all cry. We're all connected to it. Puerto Rico was really powerful to me. Here's what really blew me away about Puerto Rico. When I got there and I was driving through the SUV, you saw the scene where I was driving around the mountain, and I bet this got to you too. And I remember driving around in New Orleans after Katrina. There were American flags everywhere. I remember driving after Superstorm Sandy, right through Far Rockaway, New York. Those of you who have seen that episode, there were American flags everywhere. And I remember when we were down in Baton Rouge with Big Mike's, there are American flags everywhere. When I went to Puerto Rico and drove down the streets and saw all that destruction, there were American flags everywhere, not Puerto Rican flags. There are American flags hanging on those buildings. Those people didn't think of themselves as Puerto Ricans. They thought of themselves as Americans. And they acted that way. And that was where their loyalty and that was where their hope lied, was in that American flag. And we blew it. And just two days ago, an article came out in the paper, I I mentioned it in last week's podcast, about how FEMA blew it, and how they're saying they blew it now, and how seven months later, what you and I saw was so devastating down there. It was just crazy. Seven months afterwards, this is an an American, you know, part of America, and they didn't even have electricity. We were down there, we were losing electricity. Three times we lost power. Constantly. And that just didn't make any sense to me, you know? 
the way so, it was. So try to donate. Try yeah. to give something if you can. Just a couple of hours means a lot down there. Think about it. The average family, as of, as of how, average household, has about two and a quarter people in it. And their average median or the median household income is about $18,000 a year with two and a half people in that house. So this is a crisis down there in their Americans. So let's not forget about them. Mm -hmm. Buddy, thank you for coming down and helping us do that. It's awesome. Thank you. Bill Wills, everybody. Well, podcasts are a lot of fun. Doing it live in front of this audience is a lot of fun. Doing it with friends is even more fun. Maria Menounos and Kevin Undergaro are two of my best friends. And uh, you can sit there for a minute because I don't want you to blush while, I'm, while I talk about you. Then you guys can come up. So Kevin, uh, Maria, Nicole, and I have been good friends for years now. We've actually spent a, a good amount of time together when we can. We've had dinners together, uh, 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 spent a good amount of time in their home. And, and certain people in life inspire you. Their stories inspire you. There's something really special about Maria and Kevin to me. always has been. So it's really a pleasure for me to invite my two buddies who you've seen on Bar Rescue, Maria Menounos and Kevin Undergaro. Come on up, guys. So, you've done how many episodes of Bar Rescue? Three? Three or four. And which was the first one, Kev? Oh, my goodness. It was the one we got sick where we, we drank with the bugs and the... <laughs> it was, it was a in, cantina was in, agave. That's right, in California. So, Kevin and Maria and I met years ago, and Kevin and Maria are Bar Rescue fans. Mm -hmm. And it was through the show that we actually met... And Kevin and Maria own something called AfterBuzz TV, which if you don't know, you should check out AfterBuzzTV.com. They have, what, 200 aftershows or oh, so? Yeah, at least. Every week they post 200 aftershows from your favorite TV shows. It's incredible. So every week they produce 200 shows in their collection of studios, not far from here, actually. Close by. Uh, uh, and created a whole new media from this. So through AfterBuzz and Bar Rescue, we met and became friends. And you guys like the show? Like the show. We're yeah. obsessed with the show. We're, I mean, we're the unofficial official or official unofficial after show for Bar Rescue. Yes, you are. To the point that people think I work on the show. Now they call and complain to me. <laughs> How come you guys are doing this? Why aren't you doing that? But no, we're obsessed. We're the number one. I think you're number one fans. So I remember the I first. Concur. Phil Wills. First experience, Maria. Yes. What was your first shock when you did Bar Rescue? I think that it was real was my first shock too because like everybody was saying that you know even Phil your number one question is is it real um, and then I guess because I was such a big fan I didn't realize what it was going to be like to do recon which means you're going to eat shit and drink shit <laughs> And so I was like, uh, hello, duh, doofus, you watch this all the time. Why wouldn't you expect to, to, you know, be eating this stuff and drinking this stuff? But I took it down like a champ. You and did. And you drank some strawberry syrup that was dated yeah. like two years earlier. Yeah. And, and the look, Bugs. Maria. I have a picture in my office of Maria. Yeah. <laughs> and it is probably my favorite still shot in the history of Bar Rescues, that shot of you when you realize what you had just done. Maria was a host on Entertainment Tonight, was a host on E-Television, uh, uh, has been a journalist, a reporter on television, uh, uh, um, came from Boston with Kevin. The two of you were together 18 years before you got married. I love this story. Mm -hmm. 19, want, technically. 19, technically. Yep. And you got married on Fox TV New Year's Eve mm -hmm. 
on national television, and they were married by Steve Harvey. Yep. Yes. That, how cool is that? So, you literally, so, I'm trying to remember when in the show was it, were you married last year or this year? Technically this year. So yeah, it was after, yeah. it was after no. the ball dropped. It was before the Shit, ball dropped. So you, minutes so, before the ball, ball dropped. He doesn't even know what year he was married in. 2017. <laughs> 17. after the ball dropped? It was before. No, ratings-wise, you've got to go before the ball drops. That I know. Ah. The TV guy. Okay. So, so you got married just before the ball dropped. Yes. Yeah. On Fox by Steve Harvey. <laughs> and, and what I loved about it w- was, first of all, you asked me to come. I couldn't be there, which was an honor that you asked me to come. You and, and Nicole. And I'm one of the few people in the world that knew it was going to happen because right. you called me the night before. Only three people knew. But there's a great story. Kevin goes on the Howard Stern show with Maria. And he's going to ask Maria to marry him on the Howard Stern show. Totally normal, right? I'm sleeping in my bed. It's about a quarter to five in the morning. I don't know that you're on a Howard Stern show in New York. And the phone rings, and it's Kevin. And he says, listen, I'm about to ask Maria to marry me on the Howard Stern show. Nobody knows I'm doing this. You've got to watch. So I got out of bed, and I watched him propose. And it was one of the greatest moments I ever saw. If you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube. It's really very, very special. And Howard, I think, might have even broken a tear at that moment. Well, I think he was shocked because I wasn't saying anything. So I think he was crying for Kevin. <laughs> so the two of you <laughs> crying for him, the three rings of marriage, like, right? Kev? Most girls say yes, and they're crying. And I'm like, mm. uh, <laughs> I don't know yet. It's only been 19 years. Okay, like, You weren't sure. You weren't sure. <laughs> no, I just had, I, First of all, I thought it was a joke. He... he, he I thought he was playing with me. I'm like, America's going to hate him. What is he doing? And he pops open this thing, and it like lights up, and I thought it was a joke. And, and as a guy, you're look always real. afraid Meanwhile, it was beautiful, down. but I didn't get it then. I was like, oh my And God, I'm sitting like there hanging, and I'm like, oh, my God, she's... And gonna, I ran to the other side no. of the couch. I was like, That hiding. hesitation scared the <laughs> shit out yeah, of me, didn't it? Yeah, because in the backyard, it's always a little bit of a, you know, is she... Gotta say yes, you know. You never know. I had to keep you on your toes, didn't I? Yes. So when you two met, Maria was how old? Nineteen. Nineteen. And the two of you met in Boston, right? And you were a carny back then. Yes. Tell me the story. It's a great story. Listen to this. Well, I wanted to break into Hollywood, and like most people who have dreams like that to middle-class families, you're insane. It's doctor, lawyer, businessman. There's no, oh, go to Hollywood. So when I decided to do that, my parents were like, that's great. You're on your own. And I picked up work through a friend in the carny business just for a summer. But it was four or five months a year or five or six months a year. It enabled me to work every day and just pile up cash. So I, would t- I took that cash, went to L.A. in the winters to try to break into television. And then I ended up doing that back and forth for about a decade. But it really helped. It, that's what financed my way into the business. So you can answer a question for me. I've wondered for a very long time. Okay. Do carny people ever shower? <laughs> no, not often. I didn't think so. You ever not notice often. that? You ever see a carny person who's well-groomed, hair is combed, looks great? Well, you, you know, really, you're totally you cool with him buying your kid a hot dog, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, I no, no, you're, you, no you, you're sleeping under trucks, and, you know, you're in the worst conditions. And, and the reason why most, 99% of them aren't showering, most of them are, are jacked up on drugs but it's only the most undesirables that would take that kind of work right. because you don't sleep. You work 18, 19, 20-hour days in six or seven days a week. Yeah. So it's brutal work. Cool, too, is when you, you landed your head writing job at MTV, 
after your dad got sick, you went back and you had to do that all over again. Yeah, yeah, I had to. But my dad was sick, so you know, stay home with the family. But listen, I I learned TV so much from it, just like I learned so much from Bar Rescue. You know, I learned so much from that business. When you when you guys started your relationship in the early years of your relationship, neither of your families were very supportive of it. No, so you fought a lot of, of negative energy around you to stay mm-hmm. together. That wasn't untrue with Nicole and I. When I met Nicole, she was 22 and I was 42. Never in a million years did I think she'd go out with me. It happened over a period of time, not by design. I figured, what the hell would she want anything to do with me? So, so after we got together as boyfriend and girlfriend, we would go to restaurants. And we'd sit down at the table in a restaurant, and all the tables around us would start fighting. Because we'd sit down, and there was a 20-year difference between us, and the wife would say, look at that, that's terrible. And the husband would say, that's not so bad. And then they'd be fighting. <laughs> then this one would be fighting. Then this one, the whole damn restaurant would be arguing, and we'd be sitting in the middle just having dinner. It was hysterical. Hilarious. Now that we're older, nobody does that to us anymore. But, you know, there was an adversarial part to our relationship Absolutely. as well. And you guys had somewhat of an age difference. You also had sociological differences, religious differences and stuff mm-hmm. between you. You fought your families for a long time to be together. Well, they fought us. <laughs> they fought you. Yeah. But you held your ground. You know, we held our ground. And I, I just, I knew with Maria, it's like I knew with you, John. Like, when I see talent, I just know. And, like, when I said, Maria, it's going to be fine. We're going to make you world famous in Hollywood. And that just has a way of making everybody fall in line. And that's what happened, Maria. You can say from there. We were in, a, yeah. we were in this unfinished basement. We, we, you know, we had no one around us. It was just us. It was very lonely mm-hmm. <laughs> because you go from, you know, for me, I had a really big fat Greek family like everybody talks about. And a I was Greek very close. family at that, which, yeah. is a, which is a high energy family, your family. Yeah, and I was very close to them. And then for, for this to happen, everybody took my dad's side because they're going to take his side, of course. And I'm this horrible person all of a sudden because I fell in love with somebody who's not Greek. No one made, worried about the age difference. Um, I think my dad just realized I was probably finally having sex, and that was a big deal to him. <laughs> so <laughs> little Maria is growing up, and so I think that was the problem. But, uh, but yeah, I think I had to draw some boundaries, and I was like, you can't tell me who to fall in love with. You know, you raised me well. Now you have to let me go. And he came around eventually, but it was a painful, painful Almost two years. My dad's a severe type 1 diabetic, so I was terrified the whole time I was going to lose him. Dad's adorable, Costa. He's Ugh. really adorable. If you haven't seen him He's on television, the best. Like, yeah. And so it was tough. And then holidays, like, it would just be me, Kevin, and the dogs in L.A. And, you know, going from big, fat holidays to just us, it was, it was hard. I always wondered something about the two of you. I've never said this to you. That the fact that you were together for 18 years and never married... Did you ever think of separating during those 18 years? And is there a difference now that there's a piece of paper? Did it really matter? Because you think, you know, when you read Hollywood papers, they've been together 35 years, they've never been married. You always wonder, is the commitment different? Because the two of you were together for 18 years because you wanted to be, Mm -hmm. not because you had to be. Mm -hmm. And it was really special to me, you know, to be your friend and see it. What changed after the marriage? Anything? Well, he always is like, good morning, wife. And I'm like, good morning, husband. <laughs> and that's just terminology. That's it. Which is fun. cute and it's fun. It, yeah. it was a new layer to the relationship. So it's fresh to think, you know, to be able to call her my wife. I, I, use, I overuse it so much. Like, well, listen, my wife says, you know, so, I'm, I, so it's fun. Funny. It's a lot of fun. But for 18 years, I, we never thought once. 
we went through what we went through in Boston, you know, and I think that was our bond was permanent, and we always were like, uh, uh-uh, uh. Yeah, gonna, but I think what yeah. was what was amazing about this was to go from you know everyone hating us and not being you know for this relationship to then having the entire world celebrating us. We finally got that like love bomb that. You know, most people get in their early courtship and everybody's like all excited and then the engagement comes and everyone's excited. And with us, it was, the, you know, 19 years suffering and then, boom, everybody was like, oh, yay. It's like the three rings of marriage. The engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. <laughs> no, I don't mean that, Nicole. I don't really mean that. That's just back there in the middle of the room. That was funny. So... You know, you both have inspired me because in the years that we've known each other, I've seen business changes happen in all of our lives, right? We've lost managers who run our companies. We've talked about that together. We've had people that are close to us really hurt us, Mm -hmm. sort of betray us. We've seen that. We've experienced that together so much. This is a tough business. And, you know, I've seen both of you, you know, in that mode of toughness when we fight to protect ourselves in this business. When you think about the young people and yourself years ago, Maria, coming up, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? I'm so glad I got kicked in the gut as much as I did growing up, and I had it as hard as I did because it prepped me for what was coming, which was even harder. You know, um, it's, I mean, you gotta, you got to be ready to be in the ring with Tyson every single day. That's how I see it. That's how, what I've experienced. I wish I could say my experience was like that of Vanna White's because I interviewed her once and I'm like, okay, so tell me, you had to have had like a rough time. There had to have been something. Some yeah, executive I thought a was W like, was an M once and I blew the whole damn thing. I mean, it was like, she's like, well, the fittings are long. And I'm like, the fittings? I thought you would have an executive who wanted to get rid of you because you were aging or something. And she had a great ride and I was so happy for her. But, you know, that's not the norm. It's really, really, a really, really, really painful rough journey. You know, with some highs, of course. I'm not saying there isn't amazing parts to it, but it is really hard. And so I'm glad I got enough kicks to the gut to kind of break all those nerve endings so it would be a little easier to deal with, if that makes any sense. It does. You got a real kick to the gut this year. Maria's mom has had a brain tumor for three years? We're going on two years. We're celebrating. Two years. years years. She's a survivor, and she's fought it out. And then how many months ago was it when Maria was diagnosed? It was a year ago. A year ago, Maria finds out that she has a brain tumor. Bad one. About the size of a golf ball, correct? Mm -hmm. In her head. Imagine this. You work your entire life. You're beautiful. You have a career in Hollywood. You have a radio show. You have all of these friends. And you go to a doctor. You have a headache. And you're told something that is such an ultimatum. And I think about that moment, and I've cried thinking about this, of, you know, you showed a, a positive power during that. How did you do it? Hmm. I, unless you hit it, I never saw the sadness. I never saw anything but determination. I've got to say this. You were a hero to me. Oh, thank you. And a hero to so many. Talk to me about that. How did you find that energy and to turn this into such a positive thing. So it's funny when you were talking about the bar owners, um, I know you were talking about how unfair it is. And of course, any of these tragedies are unfair and hard to, you know, understand. But I am of the belief that life was happening for me, not to me. And for them, the same thing was happening because look at what they got. 
right? And so life was happening for me, not to me. My mom has stage four brain cancer, and I saw the good in that too. It brought our family closer together in a lot of ways, and you know the roles in our family reversed so that she became the queen in the house rather yeah. than the one who was taking care of all of us. So we saw all the bright spots in it. And when I got diagnosed, I was like, to be honest, <laughs> at first, I was just really tired. I had gotten kicked enough where I was just like, if this is it, sayonara, it's been great, I'm done, I'm tired. Um, but at the same time, when, like that was the initial. And then when I got past the initial, I was like, oh, no, 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 this is a gift. Holy shit, this is a gift. I've just said shit a lot, I apologize. Um, this is a gift. And oh, it was heavy shit. <laughs> it was heavy shit, yeah. <laughs> um, I knew it was a gift, and I knew it was happening for me, not to me, and so I realized that I had to make changes in my life, and you know, work was such a priority. Not that family never was. Of course, my family, my immediate family, always was my priority, and when my mom got sick, I mean, I was her Tom Brady and Bill Belichick all wrapped up in one um, with you know Edelman over here. But, um, but uh, yeah, I, I just knew that I had to make changes. And my life has completely changed since then. I didn't really know what happiness was before brain tumor because I was working, 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 going, 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 pushing, 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 and always trying to make so many other people proud and happy and not myself. So you and had so, to stop and smell the roses, didn't you? I did. You know, John, we've, and you know this too. And, you know, I hope everybody can hear this message and apply it to their lives. Like, we've gone from being human beings to human doings. And we're all so anxiety and so stressed. And especially women, we want to be the perfect mom, the perfect sister, the perfect friend, the perfect employee, the perfect daughter. And then. <gasps> And you're exploding inside, and you can never be perfect at all of these things, and yet everyone expects us to be perfect. They want those flowers on time. Now, I've changed everything. Now I'm like, so you had a baby? Well, okay, you might get the flowers in three months, but they're going to get there. But I'm not going to kill myself anymore to be perfect and to have them there at the time that supposedly it's supposed to be there. And I'm not going to do anything that sacrifices my health or my happiness anymore. And... If people in my life, you know, understand that, then that's great. And if they don't, they don't. But Maria's first words, she opens her eyes after her operation. So it's giving an indication of Maria's mind. She opens her eyes and says, oh, remember, it's Stephen's birthday today. One of my employees. Who could give two friggin' shits that I even remembered out of major eight-hour brain surgery, by the way. I'm still mad at him for not understanding that, like, I wake up out of surgery. Those weren't my first, first words, but they were, like, my fourth words. You know, uh, Nicole and I are very Because I quoted involved. Rocky when I got out. That's right. That's, that was the one I remembered. That's right. You know, Nicole and I are very involved in a charity in Vegas called KMA, Keep Memory Alive. It's the Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health. And Nicole and I put a lot of dollars and effort into it, and you know, last year at their gala, we all talk about the victim in brain health or tumors. We don't often talk about the caretaker. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that it's the caretakers that are so important. Kevin, I watched you during this crisis become the caretaker of all time. You were, you were incredible. Uh, uh, because this poor guy dealt with Maria's mom being sick. Your dad was sick. You were sick. One of the dogs got sick. It, it was a nightmare. So let's all remember that, you know, with every victim, there needs to be a caretaker, mm-hmm. somebody who steps up, protects them, and makes sure that they're taken care of. Without the caretaker, we're all screwed. And, and Keep Memory Alive is an organization that recognizes the caretaker 
as well as, as the victim. Well, you want to know something funny? Yeah. When I met Kevin, um, I remember talking to him. He was heading back to L.A. to you know work on his movie that I was going to be a part of. And he told me how he took massage therapy classes to heal his dad of pain because his dad was dying of cancer. And at 19, I was like, he's a caretaker. Done. And I was like, he doesn't know Little this. Little did you know. I'm going to make him fall in love with me, and that's it. He's the one. Now, why did I think at 19 I needed a caretaker? I don't know, but look, I ended up needing a caretaker. <laughs> and he was the best. <laughs> and you got a great one. So check out AfterBuzzTV.com. Check out Conversations with Maria. Mm-hmm. On SiriusXM, Channel Sirius 109. XM. And where can we find you on social? And actually, we have the podcast by the same name, available on Apple Podcasts on Fridays. Um, and social media is at Maria Menounos, spelled me, noun, O-S. Kevin. Adam Nagaro, and please, if you're a fan of Bar Rescue, check out our Bar Rescue after show. We haven't missed one, and we've been doing it since day one. It's how you and I met. It is. And, I, and it's the, fun. This, this show just doesn't, I know it doesn't get old for me. They just keep you know, doing new things and new tweaks, and, uh, it, it's, and we've learned so much. In business, so my staff for years, the first two years of launching AfterBuzz, I used to make uh, my staff watch this show. And, you know, the first, it, being millennials, it was weird for them at first because they don't like to be yelled at, so they'd see John yell. And then they yeah. understood after a few episodes, oh, my goodness, I get it now. I get he's only got four days. But all the lessons from business that you get from that show, I don't know if other people feel the same way, but it, it goes far beyond bar and, and restaurant. It's amazing. So, oh, Thank you, buddy. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. If you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. All you're really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people pay for the same car you want. And your certified dealers know this. So they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new car or a used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Well, now that I'm in a podcast business, my computer needs have really changed. I need much more graphic capability. I need the ability to blog, the ability to do much better design programs. And I found that a consumer PC just doesn't do it for me. I needed a business class PC. And the business class PC performs better. The support is better. The software and security is better. The design capacity is unbelievable because it has far greater computing power for graphics, blogging, uh, uh, streaming, everything that we need to do today in the media business. And the fact of the matter is, and right now, you can get an extra 10% off on select 8th generation Intel-powered HP PCs with the code TAFFER until September 17th at hp.com slash TAFFER. Get your 10% off. Go to HP. 
Taffer.com. Taffer now. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Okay. This is the part that we call thin ice, where I will answer any question you've got. And I will answer it honestly. I'm not sure I'll answer it correctly, but I will answer it honestly. <laughs> so, anybody have any questions? Yes, right up here in front. I don't need a mic. How do you choose the bars? Sure, how do we choose the bars? Well, first of all, it's got to be real. So they have to be losing money. They can't be criminals. So you can apply on the network website or my website, and thousands of bars apply. So we pick the cities that we want to go to. We have to do about three bars in each city because we bring in all of our trucks, a crew about 57, so we need to do three at a time so it works for us. And then we pick stories that we think are interesting. You know, no different th- than uh, uh, John and, and Victor. It's an interesting people. If, if we pick people who don't have houses and stakes on the line, then it's not real. If we pick people that are unlikable, you don't want to watch. So we try to pick stories and people that are interesting to you. Of course, yes, so they're not criminals, you bet, you bet. And, and I must tell you, we've written checks to keep the lights on because these people are in such bad financial situation. Sometimes we have to write a check to keep the lights on. Sometimes the background checks don't work out and we have to pick another location. So it's not so easy. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm a huge fan of the show. I'm Michelle. Nice to meet you. Hi, Michelle. Um, I'm like kind of a beer snob. And yes. I know that craft beer is a big thing now. Um, and it drives me nuts when I go to a bar and I'm like, oh, what is this beer like? I've never, I, don't, I don't know what it is. And the bartenders aren't educated on an IPA. Ver- an IPA is not just, that's like a kind of beer. It's not a Budweiser, you know. Yes. <laughs> it's not a brand. So Yeah, exactly. So I just wonder, like... When are they going to get schooled on? Hey, you should know your beers. You want to sell more, right? Make more tips. Come on. Yeah, you know, it's one of our pet peeves on Bar Rescue. We address it when we can. The problem is we can't do it every week, right? You guys will stop watching. So watch every three, four, five episodes. We do some beer-centric episode. I beat them up. I've had experts come in with hops on the bars, you know, and teach them and flavor profiles. And then the employees turn over, new people come in, and they don't perpetuate it. But you're absolutely right. There's a great opportunity in craft beer today. But you have to know the product to sell it right. But just because it's a craft beer doesn't mean it's good. A lot of craft beers suck, too, candidly. So, so you got to pick the right ones. And it takes somebody who knows what they're doing to recommend one. Yes, right there. Hi. Is that a Yankee hat? Yes, it okay. is. Okay. Good, good to hear that. <laughs> what is the favorite concept that you added to a bar? Oh, boy. You know, favorite concept. I've got to say there's one thing that we added to the bar, only because it was such a moneymaker. When we did Spirits on Bourbon and I put that barbershop chair in, that was a big thing. And Spirits on Bourbon was a fascinating bar because 70% of the cocktails consumed on Bourbon Street are consumed to go. So, so we built the bar sideways facing the street rather than the bar. And I got the idea to put the barbershop chair in. And now the barbershop chair is the most photographed attraction on Bourbon Street. It does about $70,000 a month. They go through five, six liters a night. And if it's a guy, they put a well-endowed girl to pour it in your. And if it's a girl, they put a handsome guy on there. But everybody gets their picture taken in that barbershop chair. Here's the story of, the, of Spirits on Bourbon, for those who don't know. When we do Bar Rescue, it's really a struggle for me to find brands and concepts. I only have a few minutes to do it. And when we were looking at Spirits on Bourbon, I asked my team to go online, because it was such an old building, and find out if there was any history. 
history. And we found out that the building was owned by a barber by the name of Edward Dubois, was his name, right, Jeff? And that Edward Dubois actually killed one of his girlfriends in that building. So from that story, I got spirits on bourbon, the barbershop chair, and a whole thing came out of that story. So, so when you create concepts and brands, you have to have what I call a creative thread. One common element that pulls all the pieces together. And that story pulled it together for us, and that's how spirits on bourbon happened. Yes, anyone else? Yes. Can you give us your favorite toffer tip? <laughs> Don't listen to me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You know, after 120 or so bar rescues, uh, uh, I really looked at, you know, what is it that holds people back? And, you know, what is it that paralyzes us? And I wrote my new book about it. And thank you all. It's a New York Times bestseller. So thank you, which is don't BS yourself. Here's what I found. Every bar rescue that I've ever done, nobody ever comes up to me and says, hey, man, I'm failing because of me. They always blame something or somebody else. I had a bar in Michigan actually blame their failure on the euro in Greece. Every owner blames their failure on someone or something else. So they come up with an excuse. Oh, it's, you know, the economy. Ah, oh, construction. Ah, oh, the mayor. Ah, oh, competition empty. They've got an excuse. But yet, what is an excuse? An excuse is the rationalization of a mistake. If you didn't make a mistake, you would never use the fucking excuse in the first place. So the tip that I have is don't allow excuses in. Don't allow an excuse. It's your fault. When you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and blame yourself, and then you'll change. If you blame someone else, you won't. That, I think, is the most important tip that I've taught myself after going through this bar rescue experience, is the fact of the matter is excuses paralyze you. They give you reasons not to do what you want to do. Think about it. Every time you use an excuse, you did something you shouldn't have, you didn't do something you should have, or you screwed something up, or you wouldn't have done the excuse. So that's my best tip. Stop with the freaking excuses. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Another one. Uh, yes, hello. Hi. <laughs> oh, once or twice, yes. I think the one that would come to mind, and Jeff Sims, my assistant director, who's, who's never far from me on set, I'm guessing that, that uh, uh, Jimmy from uh, Jack's Firehouse would be the one. But there was a scene with these brothers. The, there's nothing more intense than a couple of Irish bar owners from New York, especially when they're brothers. But Jimmy and I went at it behind the bar. And I said, I'm going to fire you. He goes, who the hell are you talking to? I said, I'm talking to you. Here's the secret. His eyes were this close to me, and he was a big guy. I learned this, believe it or not, when I was studying cultural anthropology in college, and I've also learned it with my dogs and my cats. People's pupils dilate when they get really angry. So I will piss you off to the point that those pupils start to go up, and then I'll back off, but I will not back off until that, I'm at that moment. Jimmy was close to hitting me. His pupils were about as big as they could get. And what you didn't see was behind the bar, I grabbed onto his wrist for a second and gave him a little squeeze. And that little squeeze at that moment meant, I love you even though I think you're an asshole. <laughs> we got through that moment, but that was probably the most intense moment. And there are a couple of others. I, I did get pushed when Ami in Denver called uh, Chef Duffy Fat Boy. That was an intense one. There was another one in Kansas City where the cook pushed me. So I've been pushed once or twice, but I always push back. <laughs> uh, 
Hello, Mr. John Taffer. One of the best moments of my life has been watching Bar Rescue every Sunday with a good friend of mine who served this country as a Marine. Uh, uh, thank him for we, me, please. Uh, well, we lost him uh, not too long ago. Oh. However, um, like I said, it was one of the best times of my life. I'm only 30 years old, and it's been awesome. And I know one of my best memories with him was watching uh, your show with some of the check-ins of some of the bars that you have rescued. Yeah, back to the bar. Yeah, so after you checked in with the bars... Were there any bars that you yourself decided to go in a second time and go in for, uh, I guess, a second checkup or a second bar rescue? Yes, there was one bar. It was called Extremes, and I believe that's the only one that I've ever rescued twice. And the interesting thing is I didn't quite rescue it twice. I rescued the bar. It was doing well. The owner screwed it up, but it had the same employees, and I really liked those employees. So we went back and rescued it a second time. And the owner was such a jerk that I said, screw it, and walked out and never rescued it the second time. Remember that one? That was extreme. So what I did, Terry was his name, good memory. And what I did is I said to him, you know, it was the first time ever in Bar Rescue. He was such a jerk. I said to him, if you don't put up 30 grand to invest in your own bar, I'm not putting up a dime, and he wouldn't do it, so I walked out. So that was, I believe, the only time I've ever went back. Now, I do speak to a lot of the owners very often, and I keep in touch with a great many of them, and, and they are part of my extended family. And from a bar owner standpoint, when you go through Bar Rescue as an owner, you're part of sort of a club. It's a very unique experience. So they keep in touch with each other. And there's a Friends of Bar Rescue Facebook page where I think they all communicate with each other too, which is great. Believe it or not, they do like me. <laughs> Hey. Yes. Hi, John. I'm a big Hi. fan of the show. Thank you. Uh, I just have a question about uh, the production. Like, yes. they know you're coming in for the, the recon, I assume, because the cameras are all set up and everything. So how come, like, they're always either, like, drunk or, like, <laughs> like their bartenders are getting naked all over you the know, place? You know, it's funny. I, I'm amazed myself, to be honest with you, because they knew the cameras were there. We put them in the day before. And, and they're not mini, they're not hidden, they're substantial cameras. We have joysticks in the master control room so we can turn them and focus them. Here's what's interesting, is the fake platform of Bar Rescue creates reality unlike anything I've ever seen. We have to mess with them when I walk in. Sometimes they think I'm coming tomorrow, so I come today. Sometimes they think I'm coming in a few hours, but I walk in early. We've even hung some extra lights in the bar, so we'll take the lights down and say, oh, he went to another bar. Then they let their hair down and start being themselves because they're on good behavior because they think I'm coming in. So we have to screw with them to keep it real. So now they think we're coming. They've never had more than four customers. They call everybody they know. There's 6,000 people in front of the bar. They never have more. So we can't allow that to happen. We need to keep it real. So we got to sneak up on them and sort of catch them with their pants down, and we do. What's amazing to me about Bar Rescue is look at this. Whenever anyone says the show is fake, look at this. They're the fool who was embarrassed on television. Of course they're saying it's fake. <laughs> the people who don't believe that they're embarrassed on television will always tell you the truth. Never listen to the one who was embarrassed. What they did in front of the camera still shocks me, to be honest with you. Hi. Hi. First, before the question, uh, my daughter just started college. Ah. She started FITM, Fashion Institute. Yep. And we talked to the director in business. Yes. And he asked us, have you ever watched Bar, Bar Rescue? And he said, if you haven't, watch it. Because that's ah. where you'll get the best business advice. That's great. It must be my sport jackets that he's... <laughs> 
you. Oh, that's terrific. Thank you. Um, but my question would be, um, what is an advice that you would give to someone who would want to start the bar business? You know, if you've never been in a bar business before, it's a great business. Two things. One, don't get in it because you like to drink. Right? That's like being a pharmacist because you like drugs. I mean, that makes no sense. Whatsoever. You just don't want to do that. So, so don't do it because you drink. Don't do it because you want to have a social life. It's a tough business. You're there till 3, 4 in the morning sometimes. You've got to do it because you love the business. Here's the other thing about it. People think bars are inherently profitable. They're not. And people say, oh, you know, the booze costs a dollar. He's selling it for seven bucks. Wait a minute. The rent, the payroll, the insurance, the utilities, the glassware, the damage, the plumbing, all of these things. Bars clear about 12%, 18%, that's all. So if you're going to get in a bar business, two things. One, do it for the right reasons because you want to be in a business. Two, have extra money. I see many, many bars run out of money before they actually failed, meaning... It's almost like a football game. If I had another five minutes, I would have won. Sometimes you figure out your bar in the second or third month. You turn the corner, but you ran out of money. So you've got to have extra money so that you can cover your mistakes, cover your shortfalls, and learn your lessons. Sometimes you close this month because you ran out of money. You would have made it if you had enough money for another month. That's my lesson. Yes, hi. Speaking about the bar uh, business as a whole... I'm a huge fan of whenever you guys do the tech cutaways. Yeah. So one of my favorite things was, for example, like the fluorescent lighting makes you tired after yes. a certain time. Yeah. What is your number one thing that you would tell somebody that exists in their favorite bar that they don't normally know? You know, there's a number of things that are actually sort of fun, but that's one. Fluorescent light bulbs, you don't know this. Fluorescent light bulbs flicker than the eye can see. So if you move your hand this way in front of a fluorescent bulb, you'll see the strobing flicker effect of it. Because it's flickering faster than you can see, it tires your optic nerve. You get exhausted quicker and you go home. That's why factories pulled out fluorescent lighting in favor of incandescent lighting years ago. It created more illnesses and people left earlier. It really has a negative impact. So I pull fluorescent lights out. Here's another great one. I can show it to you on the stage. I always love it when bars build elevations like this. And bar elevations are a lot of fun. So let's say this is a bar elevation and this table's up here. And I'm sitting down there where Chaz is. And I see a pretty girl up here on the stage. So I'm going to come up the elevation. I'm going to walk up the stairs. She's sitting right here. I hit a dead end. I feel like a freaking idiot. Now i got to turn around and walk back the other way, and she knows exactly what I was doing, right? So every elevation in the bar has to have two staircases. So I can come up this side and walk out the other side like i got a purpose. i got to help you bullshit your way through this. So, <laughs> so putting flow patterns, second staircases, understanding that zero level in a bar has to have high seating. Because people walk around at the zero level on a bar. When you sit at a bar stool or stand, your eyes are within about 10 inches of each other. It creates more social interaction. At an elevated area would be low seating. So the low seating in the elevation, the high seating at zero, and the person standing, everybody's eyes are within 10 inches of each other. It creates more interaction. You look in her eyes, before you know it, you guys are having breakfast. That's the way it works. So little things like that create the human action that makes the human interaction that makes the bar work. Anything else? Sorry about that. Yes. Uh, okay. As far as you dealing with um, specifically uh, food, which is one thing, beverage, which is a whole other thing, then say interior 
decoration and design is this whole other architecture. Then construction is another thing completely by itself unique. So what are your actual occupational specializations? I think I would like to know very much. I think we don't like who, what the hell do you, what is it with, what makes you besides just a guy standing there? Well, actually, uh, uh, what I do when I'm not on television right now is, is I own a company called Taffer Dynamics. It's an established hospitality consulting company. We've been doing it for 30 years. Those of you who don't know, I invented the NFL Sunday ticket, sat on the board of NFL Enterprises for about three years. Uh, uh, I create resorts and destinations all over the country. I was one of the people who created a number of restaurant concepts that you know of. Uh, uh, right now I'm building a resort in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. We bought an entire mountain. We're putting a 400-room uh, hotel, a 300-room lodge, 81 cabins, a lakeside attraction that we're calling a crystal lagoon. I'm putting snow-making equipment on a light pole so I can make it snow in July, and we're building an attraction. This is what I've done for 30 years. So I create concepts. We work with design teams. We're not designers, but we steer the design team so it fits the concept that we're creating. We then work with the construction teams. We deal with value engineering, cost overruns, and we function as an owner advocate. So if you were building a large entertainment venue, you would hire my company. We would coordinate all the actions between the designers, the architects, the engineers, the construction, all of that, branding, logos, product creation, food, all of it needs to come together to be cohesive. We're the clearinghouse that makes that happen, and we do it for some of the largest corporations in the world. Thank you. So yes, it's, this is what I really do for a living, and I'm really fortunate that I get to share it with all of you on Bar Rescue. So thank you all for coming. This was a lot of fun. Let's do it again, okay? Hey, John, Thanks, everybody. John, we've also got a special message right behind you. Look at that screen from one of your, one of your friends. Just want to thank John for the opportunity he gave um, J.J. Bray and I to go down and to help. Um, the devastation is real, and it continues. And just the little things we were able to do, help refurbish a community center, build out a basketball court, play basketball with the kids, and just try to give them a little bit more hope and a little bit of um, guidance and confidence that things really can get better. I think people forget that Puerto Ricans are Americans. They're, they're, they're not some foreign country. They're part of us. And the least we can do is really try to, to continue the attention and let people know that there's still a lot of work to be done. I know I'm looking forward to going back, and I know John is as well. Thanks, John. Congratulations on a great show, and thanks for letting me be part of it. That's a, that's a great guy right there. By the way, before Mark came with me, he sent five plane loads of supplies down to Puerto Rico before he came down to help me down there. So he's a real guy really trying to make a difference. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 